This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Welcome to this session of a podcast series, which I'm calling The Engine Room of Democracy. In this series, we're exploring the rule of law, how it really works in the real world. And we're talking to very, very senior officials that lived and served professionally in protecting rule of law in various aspects of their professional lives. And today, I'm just very delighted to welcome Stephen Preston. Steve is unique in many ways. He served as the senior lawyer, the general counsel for both the Department of Defense and for the CIA. And in this capacity, it meant that he was an integral leader in almost every deliberation that involved the potential use of force by the United States. The topic that we want to discuss with Steve today is really a very fundamental question, and that is how does the government conduct lawful violent action? The government has both overt forces and covert forces. So how do we use those forces in a lawful manner? How do we ensure positive control for the use of forces so that those forces are only doing things that the president wants done rather than things that just evolve? It sounds simple, and it's a complicated question. Steve, welcome. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Hamry, and uh, it's my great pleasure to be here. I have to tell everyone that I had the distinct privilege to serve with John Hamry at DOD some 25 plus years ago. And it was my great good fortune to meet someone as public spirited and generous and insightful as John Hamry, as I was starting off in law and national security. So I'm grateful for that. And it's a great pleasure uh, to be here with you today, John. So Steve, tell us about lawful warfare. <laughs> That's a really a fascinating question. Well, I think the topic that you've chosen for this series and hopefully for today is both important and timely. You know, it is said that ours is a nation of laws. And in my view, an abiding respect for the rule of law in military operations and intelligence activities, this abiding respect for the rule of law in this country is one of our nation's greatest qualities. It's an essential quality. It makes us an example to the world. It commands the respect of our friends and allies. And it is a great strength against our adversaries, including, and I would say even especially, those adversaries with only contempt for the law. That's been true for the last 20 years in the fight against Al-Qaeda and more recently the Islamic State 
it's still true today in this era of great powers competition. Steve, I need context and background. Would you please share with us, just give us a framework for how does it apply to the use of force? How does rule of law, how does lawful warfare, what's the framework for this so that we can understand what you're going to tell us? Sure. So I think of it in terms of two basic issues. First, whether there is legal authority to act in the first place. That is legal authority to go to war or legal authority to conduct an operation. And second, whether the operation is being conducted in compliance with the law. So two issues, authority to act and compliance in carrying out the action. And then there are two basic fundamental sources of law. First, under U.S. law, domestic U.S. law, the Constitution, statutes, executive orders of the United States, and then also under international legal principles. So as I think about how you assess the lawfulness of military action, the lawfulness of the use of force, I think of a very simple four-box matrix with international law and domestic law across the top and authority to act and compliance and execution down the side. And when I'm looking at a perspective operation, I want to think about each of those four boxes to ensure that the operation is fully compliant with applicable law. It all gets grounded, of course, in the Constitution. The Constitution provides broad outlines. The president is the commander-in-chief, but the Congress is the one that's authorized to authorize warfare. And yet that seems to be widely ignored. We seem to be in an awful lot of skirmishes around the world without declarations of war. Well, that's right. And I'll just agree that we have to start with the Constitution. The Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land, and it is certainly the supreme law when it comes to U.S. national security. Now, in our lifetimes, since the middle of the last century, the principal focus has been on the president's powers under Article II of the Constitution. His responsibility as chief executive and commander-in-chief to protect the United States, to protect its citizens from an imminent threat of violent attack. And as you've pointed out, Congress has not exercised its Article I power to formally declare war in years. And in fact, not since 1941, following the Pearl Harbor attack, when Congress declared war against Japan and shortly thereafter against Germany and Italy. But Congress still has a critical role to play in the decision whether to wage war. In that post-World War II period, Congress has acted through resolutions to authorize the conduct of war. For example, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution prior to the escalation of the Vietnam War. I did my doctoral dissertation on the War Powers Act. And I thought at the time that it was going to be far more powerful and important than it's turned out to be. It kind of seems like it's a speed bump for presidents. What are the real constraints on the president when it comes to waging war? Well, I'm loath to disagree with you, but I'm not sure I agree that the War Powers Resolution has been more of a speed bump than a real restraint on presidential war making. Under the War Powers Resolution, which was enacted following the excesses in Southeast Asia during the Nixon administration, the War Powers Resolution permits the president to commence hostilities in defense of the country, can prosecute those hostilities for 60 days, but cannot prosecute those hostilities beyond 60 days without a specific authorization from Congress. And it is true that presidents have consistently, since that time, expressed reservations about the constitutionality of the War Powers Resolution, particularly its constitutionality as applied in certain circumstances 
that might infringe upon the president's constitutional authority. But those same presidents have also consistently adhered to the restrictions that I just described. I think the problem that we've seen in recent memory is that Congress has largely abdicated its role in the process. Congress passed a very broad AUMF in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attack, but with our currently deeply politically divided government, Congress has been unable to enact an AUMF tailored to the current and foreseeable threats today. AUMF would be authorized use of military force? That's right. Yeah, it was a legal authorization during the so-called war on terrorism, and we continue to operate with that, and now it's 20 years. That's right. Well, the previous administration did propose an AUMF that was narrower and I think better tailored to the current threat environment, but Congress was unable to agree on further legislation to provide that framework going forward. Steve, again, I mentioned at the introduction, you were both a senior legal officer in the Defense Department as well as the CIA. And, you know, we have both overt public use of force through the Department of Defense, and we have covert use of force. There's a legal framework for both of them. Could you describe that for us? Sure. So let's start with the overt use of military force. As the word overt would suggest, military operations are to be conducted openly. The military members wear uniforms. They wear uniforms with the insignia of our country, the American flag. That, by the way, is a provision that is necessary to entitle them to the protections that lawful combatants get under the Geneva Conventions. But it is also the practice and policy in this country for military operations to be conducted openly. Now, that said, they may also include clandestine operations that are carried out secretly for the duration of the operation or the conflict for operational security or other reasons. But by and large, military operations are conducted overtly in the open and in any event have to be acknowledged as actions of the United States government. Now, those operations are carried out by military forces, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, in the services, raised, trained, and equipped under Title 10 of the U.S. Code. So you'll hear references to Title 10. In terms of the lawful conduct of military operations, going back to my earlier construct, the operations have to be undertaken with legal authority to act. That could be acting in national self-defense. It could be acting pursuant to a congressional authorization for the use of military force. And those operations have to be in compliance with the law in execution. So, for example, there's a principle called discrimination that requires military force to be applied discriminately, discriminating between enemy combatants and civilians. Now, we turn to then the covert action, Let me start with a definition there, because it is a term of art, if you will. Covert action are activities to influence conditions abroad where it is intended that the role of the United States government will not be apparent or acknowledged publicly. So activities to influence conditions abroad where we are hiding the hand of the government. And this is this concept of deniability, that if an event under covert action were to become public, it may have happened. The United States government does not acknowledge that it was U.S. government activity. That's the concept of deniability. Now, these missions have historically been assigned to the Central Intelligence Agency, 
under Title 50 of the U.S. Code. So we had Title 10, now we're in Title 50. In order to be lawful, covert action must be authorized by the President of the United States, and Congress must be notified in what's called a presidential finding under the National Security Act of 1947. And then in addition to that, in order to be lawful, they must be conducted in accordance with any limitations and conditions in the finding, as well as other U.S. law. And Congress, by law, must be kept fully and currently informed of these programs. And this is critical because, remember, this is covert action. It's carried out in the absence of public scrutiny. There's no judicial review. So having a robust, legally compelled system of keeping Congress informed fully in these programs is critical, both in terms of the conduct by a democratic government and in terms of ensuring lawfulness. In a very layman's sense, the president, if he wants to use forces, has to legally sign a document or a directive that is reviewed and cleared by general counsel to ensure that it's a lawful use of force. That is correct. Steve, let me ask if I can. You know, I think when you have a giant organization like the Department of Defense, two million people, you know, I don't know the number of people involved in operations in the CIA, I probably couldn't say it anyway, but these are large numbers. And obviously, things can go wrong. So a president wants to ensure that they carry out the order, but they don't go beyond the order so that there's positive control over those forces. Can you say, how does that work for both overt and covert force operations? Sure. Well, as you point out, our military and the Department of Defense is a huge organization. And so maintaining that positive control over forces is critically important in order to among other things, ensure that they remain lawful. At DOD, in the military, there is a strong and long-standing history, culture, doctrine built around the concept of command. There is, in warfighting, in military operations, always to be a clear chain of command with a series of orders going from the commander-in-chief, the president, through the secretary of defense, to the responsible regional combatant commander in theater, and all the way down to the foot soldier. That would be for the overt military operations. Then for covert operations, you don't have at CIA the same command culture, but there is a similar reporting chain, again, from the president of the United States to the director of CIA, down to the operations officers in the field. And keep in mind that covert action programs don't belong to the CIA. These are the president's programs, and there's typically active White House oversight over the conduct of these programs. The other thing to mention, which you did, John, is that CIA is a much smaller organization. It's a flatter organization. So there are fewer layers. There's greater visibility on the part of the director into what's happening in the field. There was a lot of discussion about designing the appropriate rules of engagement. Tell our listeners, what are rules of engagement? What does it mean? And is there a difference between overt and covert operations on rules of engagement? Sure. Rules of engagement, I think, is simply the means by which lawful military orders or a lawful intelligence finding issued at the top of the organization is translated into clear, workable guidance to the targeters, to the trigger pullers, to the folks on the ground. I mean, literally, you can take a multi-page order issued at the top 
And by the time it gets to the infantryman, it has to be reduced to something that'll fit on a three by five card and is understandable to someone who's been trained as an infantryman, not as a lawyer or as a politician. And so ROE play a critical role in maintaining the rule of law, in maintaining the lawfulness of operations. And critical to that, I would say, are the lawyers at DOD, the lawyers at CIA that are integrated into the authorization and planning of such operations. So on the military side, we have uniform lawyers who are expert in operational law. These are judge advocates or JAG officers for short. They're deployed with U.S. forces abroad. There's a JAG officer at the side of the warfighting commander in the field advising to ensure the lawfulness of operations. On the intelligence side, the lawyering is done by civilian lawyers, principally at the headquarters level. But agency lawyers are directly involved in planning and decision-making. And to take but one example, the operation against Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, Pakistan, I would say that that was not heavily lawyered, but it was thoroughly lawyered. Not heavily lawyered because of the constraints to maintain secrecy and operational security. There were very few people that were winning uh, the operation before it was executed. But there were a handful of lawyers involved from the beginning of operational planning until the eve of the operation when the go order was given. And those lawyers' purpose was to ensure that at the end of the day, the United States was engaging in an operation that was both lawful in the undertaking and lawful in the execution under U.S. and international law. Steve, earlier you spoke rather eloquently about the role of oversight. We've got multiple dimensions of oversight. We've got oversight by the White House, oversight by the judiciary, oversight by the Congress, oversight by independent inspectors general. Give us a landscape of oversight for both of these types of use of force. Sure. Well, the first line of defense, if you will, is within the operating organization. So for both DOD and CIA, there is oversight in the form of the chain of command or reporting chain that I described, where operators are overseen by superior officers and the chain of command runs from the ground up to the highest levels of leadership. And I should note that for the military, that chain always runs to the Secretary of Defense and ultimately the Commander-in-Chief, the President. And that is a principal means by which we maintain civilian control of the military. Now, as you mentioned and I mentioned earlier, for both DOD and CIA, there's direct supervision by the National Security Council and ultimately the President of the United States. The National Security Council being a White House component focused on defense and intelligence matters, and the President being advised by the National Security Deputy Secretaries and Secretaries, known as the Deputies Committee or the Principals Committee. And it is the president, ultimately, whose constitutional duty includes not only protecting our country and its people from attack, but also the duty to take care, and I'm quoting, to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. So this is oversight that, again, helps ensure the lawfulness of military and intelligence activities. Also within the executive branch, there are agency inspectors general have a measure of independence from the agency leadership. And there's the Department of Justice, to which both DOD and CIA are required by law to report all possible violations of federal criminal laws. And then beyond all that, uh, and to use the old expression, 
last but not least, and certainly not least, they're the oversight committees of the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. So you have the Senate Armed Services Committee and the House Armed Services Committee overseeing DOD and the military. You have the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence overseeing CIA and the intelligence community. Just for the listeners, I think it's important to say chain of command means everybody in the chain of command is accountable. You know, you are accountable for the persons operating below you. If you are the Secretary of Defense, you're accountable for what's happening in the field. So it's a very broad definition of accountability and responsibility, not just authority. Is that right? That's right. And again, on the military side, there's the Uniform Code of Military Justice. There is a criminal and administrative disciplinary procedure, the entire purpose of which is to maintain good order and discipline, to maintain that chain of command and to ensure accountability to that chain of command. On the intelligence side, the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, doesn't apply, but there are codes of conduct and accountability mechanisms that serve a very similar purpose. Can I ask about judicial oversight? I think we've heard a lot in recent years about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the FISA Act, which created a special secret court for overseeing intelligence collection. Does that have any responsibility when it relates to covert operations? So the short answer is no. The FISA court is directed towards surveillance and that form of intelligence collection. The court really has no role in authorizing or reviewing military operations or covert action. The larger body of federal courts has a role, uh, but it's a limited role. The courts have long recognized, for example, the state secrets privilege as a bar to the disclosure in court of state secrets, of information relating to sources and methods of intelligence activities, for example. And the courts have also not infrequently dismissed cases brought challenging national security judgments by the president in acknowledging that the courts may at times be institutionally ill-equipped or constitutionally incapable of second-guessing national security judgments committed to the president by the Constitution, committed to the political branches, the president and the Congress. So to take a perhaps obvious example, the courts are just simply ill-equipped to second-guess a judgment that has to be made based on real-time intelligence and has to be made in an extremely short time period uh, where lives may be at stake. And they recognize that. There is a notable exception, and that is habeas corpus jurisdiction, which the courts have used to review detention cases. Now, I think most folks think of the use of force, as we've been using it today, as involving kinetic operations, strikes, dropping bombs, shooting bullets. But actually, for these purposes, detention of an enemy is also a form of the use of force. You're holding someone against their will. Now, there's not much case law on the proper use of force for the reasons I alluded to, but much of what there is, at least in the recent years, has been made in these detainee cases under the court's habeas jurisdiction. For our listener, habeas corpus means the government has to explain why they've arrested you? That's right. So that's the ancient writ of habeas corpus. It goes back to English common law prior to the founding of this country. And it is a judicial proceeding in which the government can be called to account for why they're holding someone against their will. 
habeas corpus even carries over to things like the Geneva Conventions. You know, we hear about the Geneva Conventions. It's kind of an iconic term, but very few people really know about the Geneva Conventions. What does law of war refer to and how does the Geneva Conventions play and how are they relevant here? So the Geneva Conventions are a set of agreed upon statements of international law governing the conduct of uh, conflict. And they require humane treatment of prisoners, of the wounded and sick, and civilians. You can think of the Geneva Conventions as a component of the law of war, a very important component, I might add. The law of war is more broadly the international law that regulates the conditions for going to war and the conduct of the warring parties in conflict. It's not for the purpose of ensuring a fair fight. General Colin Powell is famous for saying we don't want a fair fight. The United States should only fight when the odds are overwhelmingly in our favor. The purpose is instead of providing a fair fight is to ensure that there's no unnecessary disruption and hardship, to protect combatants from unnecessary suffering, to safeguard civilian populations, and to facilitate an end to the conflict as quickly as possible. So as we said, the Geneva Conventions are uh, part of the law of war. You'll also hear the law of war referred to as the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law. And examples include, in addition to the Geneva Conventions, for example, the Charter of the United Nations. Great. Thank you, Steve. So we're coming to the conclusion here. Let me just extract, I think, the very big points that you've made in this conversation. Rule of law is fundamental. It's in our Constitution, and it runs up and down the way we organize even the most basic and violent acts of a government or a democracy. Rule of law is present. It depends on institutions. We build institutions that we created to ensure that we follow rule of law, and we conduct lawful warfare. You talked about having lawyers right in the battlefield. It depends on procedures, procedures that we can observe and and institutions that will hold us accountable to those procedures. And then finally, I think this rule of law really depends on a political consensus that just transcends politics. We have to believe firmly in the larger goals of our civic construction. It's been wonderful to listen to you, Steve. Let me just say, I think it also depends on commitment and leadership at the top. If we go back, take the example of General George Washington, who exchanged letters with the commander of British forces, agreeing to abide by certain terms, terms we would today call the law of war. There's the example of President Lincoln, who issued General Order Number 100, also known as the Lieber Code, dictating how Union soldiers should conduct themselves in the Civil War. That same leadership is required today if we are to preserve this nation's commitment to the rule of law. Steve, that's a wonderful coda for this session. I've greatly, greatly enjoyed it, and I've learned a lot. And I want to say a personal thank you to you for your public service, having served at the highest levels of government. You continue to serve because you're willing to help educate the broader public about the nature of this crucial dimension of this, I call the engine room of democracy. This is where democracy is really run. And I'm grateful for what you've done. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for doing this series. It's a terrific topic, very important, very timely. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, 
The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 